Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Well, hey, y'all, it's good to see you. Today is uh, week two in our new sermon series, um, Confronting Christianity, where we're working through six of the most difficult questions facing Christians. Last week, we talked about God and science. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about uh, how could a loving God send people to hell? And then on September the 10th, isn't Christianity homophobic? And then on the 17th, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? And then on the 24th, how can you say there's only one true faith? So those are the subjects we're going to be wrestling through. And if you have friends or neighbors that any of those might pique their interest, I'd love for you to invite them with you. But today we're addressing one of the most difficult questions uh, of all, which may be the leading philosophical reason why people don't believe and why many believers lose their faith or almost do. And it's the question, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? That is either the Holy Spirit or technical difficulties. And I will assume it's the latter. So we'll just kind of pray that away for a minute and then we'll jump in. Father, today is a, a heavy day for us. Um, Lord, in this room, there are many that are uh, hurting and suffering. Father, there are uh, there are families who have lost loved ones, and uh, Lord, there are marriages that are just really struggling, and Lord, there are many among us who are facing debilitating depression and anxiety. Um, Lord, there are doctor's appointments coming up this week uh, that we have no idea how they're going to go. And Lord, there's just a lot and there's a heaviness in the room. And Lord, sometimes it feels like when it rains, it pours. And Father, it just seems like in this season, so many in in this church family, and, and I think others too, are just getting pounded by the waves of life. So Father, I pray that today this gathering, this church would not be a country club for the righteous, but a hospital for the hurting. God, only you know how bad some of us in this room are hurting. But Lord, I pray that every person, man, woman, boy, girl, young, old, believer, non-believer, that God, they would know that we would know that you see us, that you're not oblivious to our pain, and that even though you don't promise to always give us the the reasons, the why behind the trial, God, you do promise to be present, and so God, I pray that you would be here, and that for the heart that is barely holding on, you would wrap them in your arms and just allow them to lie down in your loving grace. God, there's nothing I can say to make pain go away. God, just going to get me out of the way and may Christ May Christ be central and so clearly seen today that we would all fall at his feet and hold on to Christ as tight as we can. 
because sometimes it's, he's all we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, they say, you know, grown men aren't supposed to cry. Last week, two 40-year-old men cried together. I was one of them. Me and my buddy Brian, who I think you may see up here, that's Brian on his wedding day, and then the, I think we may have one more. That's me and Brian as little ones. Uh, if you go back to that last picture, we always called him Woody Harrelson. You know, he does kind of resemble him, actually. But uh, best friends growing up from second grade on, it, there wasn't a Friday night when one of us wasn't spending the night at the other's house. And his dad, Corky, uh, definitely a Trick County name, was uh, our our coach from, you know, T-ball all the way through. And so all the UK games and middle school, high school, elementary, we were there together and, uh, you know, camping together and all that. So we graduate high school. I go to Murray. He goes to UK. And we kind of go off and, you know, do our own thing and, and start our adult lives. And But we still stay in touch. He lives down in Florida now. And uh, so he called me one day last year, and we just kind of shoot the breeze, you know, and catch up and talk about Kentucky's recruiting class. And then the mood kind of changes uh, in the phone call. It's like, man, he said, I got advanced uh, stages of uh, colorectal cancer. Wife, two little kids, healthy, exercise, works out every day, all that stuff. And so now his life is the Mayo Clinic and chemo and multiple surgeries, all of which have had complications and all these hospitalizations. And uh, he's, he's weak, he's tired, and he's really, really, really sick. And his wife and his kids are hurting because daddy's hurting. And uh, what if what if daddy doesn't get better? And Brian's super strong and optimistic, and you know, always the uh, sees the the bright side, you know. But even faith-filled, strong people have a breaking point, don't they? So I prayed for him over the phone, and he cried, and I cried. And I got off the phone and I, I, I said, no, why God? Why him? Why Jerry Lynn? Why his kids? He's such a good guy. Why him? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? It's the hardest question to answer and I, and I can't answer it really. I've studied all the philosophy and, you know, all the argumentation for all these things. And I thought about doing that and it would have felt more like a, a lecture. You know, I, I can prove, I think, that God exists in suffering and it doesn't mean he's bad and all of that. But it just didn't feel like that's the direction I was supposed to go. Uh, today, we're not going to talk about as much the why, but the who. Um, I don't know why there's so much suffering and why it happens disproportionately. It's not the same for everybody. It, some, it seems like, get it worse than others. And, and, and sometimes really good people get it really bad, and sometimes really bad people seem to have it made in the shade. Now, I don't know why. The Bible speaks to that. You know, the Proverbs acknowledge that. Other places in Scripture, but the TV show Yellowstone, which I'm not commending to you because if I did, that would be a really bad thing for a pastor to do. But in in theory, I heard about it, and um, uh, my wife told me about it. Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner. And what is his greatest role, in my opinion, uh, plays the role of John Dutton, and he's this big cattle rancher, and he's in Montana. 
But his whole life is just nothing but suffering. You know, he's got this ranch and all this money, but his life is nothing but pain. And there's this one moment, uh, it's this really numbing, gut-wrenching line, and, and I wrote it down, um, and, and it says, he, John said, my whole life is just a long series of losing everything I love. He had lost his brother, his wife, his dad, his son, and his grandson. And maybe that's how some of us feel. You just feel like I can't catch a break. Just keep losing everything that I love. And you're hurting and you're suffering and you're mentally exhausted and maybe your your soul is bleeding out to the point where, as C.S. Lewis said, when his wife died of cancer, he said, you know, I, I know God exists. The question is not, does God exist? The question for me, Lewis said, is, is he good? And that is the more dangerous question, probably. You're a Christian. You believe. But it doesn't feel like God's being good to us sometimes. And so all I can say is this, is that God is real, and God loves you, and he's here. In the Bible, in John 11, there's a story where um, Jesus is, one of his best friends falls critically ill. His name was Lazarus. He had two sisters, Martha and Mary, and when Jesus would travel, he would actually stay at their house, so they're super close. Well, Jesus is off in another town doing ministry. Lazarus gets sick, so the sisters send word to Jesus, hey, our brother's really bad. Like he's, you know, he's in critical care. The docs have given him 24 hours to live. Like, Jesus, you gotta get here. And then John tells us Jesus, when receiving the news that one of his best friends was sick, Jesus intentionally delays before going, which gets you right out of the gate, scratching your head. Like, why is Jesus on purpose does not go heal him? So Martha and Mary are distraught. Where's Jesus? And, and while Jesus is, is delaying, Lazarus dies. So that's where we pick it up. That's the context, John 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem and uh, two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So think about, you know, a wake or a, a visitation is happening. So in verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, now listen to the desperation in her voice. I can't do it justice with my tone. But imagine a, a desperate woman whose brother has just died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, where were you? Let's get down to verse 32. The other sister does the same thing. Mary when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. This is a desperate, broken woman. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can really hear the desperation and I would say the frustration in their voices they were good, godly women who loved Jesus, but they didn't get it. They weren't just sad. I think they were angry with Jesus. Jesus, you're out there healing all these other people because he was. He was in nearby towns healing the sick. And they had heard reports. They had seen Jesus do incredible miracles. And it's like, Jesus, we're happy for what you're doing in everybody else's life, but what about us? What about our brother? I'm thankful they got a miracle. Where's, 
Where's our miracle? Jesus, I thought we were closer than that. You stay at our house. Where I washed your feet with my hair, Mary says. Jesus, where were you when we needed you the most? And maybe you've asked Jesus a similar question. Jesus, when my marriage was falling apart, where were you? Jesus, when mom got sick, where were you? Jesus, when dad walked out on us, when we were kids, where were you? Jesus, when my spouse died way too young, where were you? Jesus, when that person that I trusted abused me, where were you? For Martha and Mary, it's Jesus, where were you when our brother was dying? It takes a lot of audacity, doesn't it? We can do it 2,000 years later in our prayers, and I'm going to talk about that. But Mary and Martha do it right to the Son of God's face. They question him right in his face. Where were you? They know he's God's son. And yet one of the most revealing things, maybe in all of Scripture, in my opinion, about the character of Christ is the way he responds to himself being questioned. You know, when, when somebody challenges us, when someone rebukes us, when someone questions us, or even our integrity, the few things say more about us than the way we respond under pressure. When you poke us, what comes out? Jesus' integrity, his goodness is questioned. And he does not scold them. He does not lecture them. He does not condemn them. He doesn't say, suck it up, buttercup, big girls don't cry. Put your, put your big boy pants on. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, oh, well, if you just would have prosperity gospel people, if you just would have had more faith, God would have healed your brother. He does none of that. And so, if nothing else from this example, we see it's okay to ask Jesus hard questions about why he can handle it. I mean, if you'll read the Psalms, they are littered with suffering people asking hard questions of God. In fact, Psalms of lament, which is you know, sadness and grief, outnumber Psalms of praise almost two to one. So the longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms, and the people that wrote it are sad twice as much as they're happy, essentially. And they're telling God all about it. It's the journal entries of suffering Christians. And so they say things like, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God, why have you forgotten me? God, why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Now, typically what you see is by the end of the psalm, they come around and say, okay, God, but I, I trust you. I hope in you. But before they get to the hope and the trust, often there's authenticity and vulnerability and realness, and they take the mask off, and that's where Christ meets them. There's something about our most meaningful friendships and relationships. If there's no vulnerability, if there's no realness, you're not really friends, right? Well, the more you want to know Christ, you got to be more real with Christ. And Martha and Mary had that kind of relationship with him where they, they knew they could be honest with God. The Bible reveals to us, if you can't be honest with God, who can you be honest with? He knows what we're thinking anyway. Jesus himself uh, asked questions when suffering. The night before he dies in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus cries out, Father, please let this cup pass from me. God, is there another way besides the cross? Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with his father in prayer. And so Martha and Mary do that. Jesus, where were you when we needed you the most? And now, finally, look at Jesus' response. I told you what he didn't do. He didn't scold them. He didn't lecture them. Um, 
that thing's coming back. Are we gonna have to pray again? Look at his response in John eleven thirty three. Okay, we're gonna pray again. Father, for some reason, it is better now to stop and pray than for me to keep going. So Lord, we uh, ask and pray, um, Lord, for grace. Lord, even at this point in the service, um, Lord, for some, there are wounds that are just being ripped open. And Lord, as the service progresses for some of us, it's not getting easier, it's getting harder. We can relate to Martha and Mary. So God, just be near, be here, get grace, help. We're weak, we're needy. Help us in Jesus' name, amen. So Martha and Mary questioned Jesus, where were you? Look at his response, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, the one we all memorize in Sunday school, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Here we see the humanity of Christ. He is the Christ who created the universe. He is sovereign over all things. But he is also the God who cries. He is the God who feels. Jesus gets sad, and he gets sad when his people are sad. And so I think if you're here this morning and you're hurting, the, the Lord wants you to know that he's sad with you. He's sad with you. And Hebrews 4 tells us he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Everything we've experienced, depression, Jesus was depressed. Grieving, he grieved a lot. Abandoned by family or close friends, Jesus was abandoned by all the people closest to him. Physical sickness, Jesus had it all. Been lied about, gossiped about, slandered, Jesus had it all. Jesus experienced the full gamut of all human emotion and pain and suffering, trauma, abandonment, abuse, neglect. Jesus experienced it all. And so Hebrews says we're able to boldly go to him when we are sad, when we are broken, and he gets it. Jesus is not turned away by our sorrow. It, it draws him in. He is the great surgeon of heaven who has the best bedside manner because he's had the disease. He's felt the pain. And he doesn't just give a diagnosis and walks out. He holds the patient's hand and he weeps with us and he'll crawl down and lie beside us because he's good and he's merciful. Jesus's presence is the safest place in the world for us to fall apart. With Jesus, it's okay not to be okay. Carrie Underwood says, you, you know, you got to cry pretty. Not with Jesus. He won't judge us. He'll cry with us. This sets Christianity apart, by the way, from all other world religions. No other world religion really knows what to do with suffering. All they can do is say something about karma or, or, some, or, or God doesn't exist. They don't know what to do with it. But only in biblical Christianity is there a God who cries because only in biblical Christianity is there a God who suffers and dies. Jesus is not aloof to our reality. He became one of us. God left heaven in the person of Christ. So Jesus doesn't just feel sorry for us when we're hurting. He actually takes on our very pain and suffering. He meets us right in the middle of it. He becomes our substitute. In Isaiah 53, it was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus would die. 
that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus didn't just cry in John 11. He apparently cried a lot. Hebrews says he would desperately cry out and groan to his father in heaven. Jesus was broken a lot. And he was, at the same time, the healthiest man ever to live. So just because you're broken and sad and grieving doesn't mean you're not real or there's something wrong with you. It means you're human. Christ paves the way. And then the Bible says, surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he experiences every element of pain and suffering we've endured. He takes it upon himself. And so the Christian religion, unlike other religions, does not try to explain away suffering as, you know, the, a bad result of evolution or just survival of the fittest or, you know, only the strong survive and the, you know, it, or karma or, you know, reincarnation. You screwed up in the last life and that's why you're getting pounded in this life. That's not what we see from scripture. If you look up the word suffering in the dictionary, you will see the face of Jesus. He embodies our suffering so he can end our suffering without having to end us. So every tear we've ever cried was placed in Jesus's eyes on the cross. He literally, Isaiah says, carries our sorrows. Every parent's worst nightmare is outliving a child. And I watched my grandmother do it twice in six months. We stood by Grandma Stalin's and held her as she buried both of her adult sons within six months. And a few months later, Grandma died of a broken heart. So the, those that have experienced this, the greatest pain in the world is not that something would happen to us, but that we would lose someone we're close to. It's relational loss. It's losing a sibling, a parent, a, a child, a, a friend. So Tim Keller says this. He says, we cannot fathom, however, what it would be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that has lasted several years, but infinite love, the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable. And this is why the night before Jesus dies, he is utterly broken and devastated. Jesus has what we would say in today's terms, a full nervous breakdown. Luke, he has sweat drops of blood, Jesus. He is groaning. He is crying out. His soul plunges into infinite darkness, total depression. And it's, and it's not because he's fearful in his flesh of the crown of thorns or the nails in his hand and feet or the scourging of his back that would rip him wide open. Christ's soul, his spirit is bleeding out from within, plunged into utter darkness because he knows the next day he will face the wrath of God for our sins and the complete and total abandonment of his own loving father. Three years prior, Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water, and his father says, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And now on the cross, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned by his own father. So if you've ever felt forsaken by God, Jesus can relate. So he's a safe place to go. I'm telling you, there's nothing we've experienced that Christ can't sympathize with. He, he gets it. And so when we cry out to God and with any number of questions, 
Jesus will not roll his eyes. He will say, I feel you. I've been there. Come to me. Chris Stapleton sings about broken halos and people passing away before their time. It's a great song. And he sings, there's this line where he says, don't go looking for the answers. Don't go asking Jesus why. We're not meant to know the answers. They belong to the by and by. Stapleton is wrong and he's right. He's wrong in that we can't ask Jesus why. You can. But he's right in that sometimes we don't get the answers from Jesus until the by and by. But just because Jesus may not answer doesn't mean he doesn't hear and care. There are no wasted prayers. There are no wasted tears. I love this verse in Psalm 56. It's a, it's a desperate psalmist who's suffering. And he's crying out to God. He's afraid. And he says in verse 8, God, you have kept count of my tossings. Hey, tossing in the night, sleepless nights, desperation, anxiety, worry. God, you have kept count of all of my sleepless nights. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So it's as though all of our prayers and all of our tears, even though they're not always answered, they're kept in heaven. Not a prayer is wasted. Not a tear is unseen. And Jesus won't always tell us why, but he will hold us as we cry. And so this is what he's doing with Martha and Mary. He, he doesn't give them quick fixes or quick answers. He, he is inviting them into closer intimacy with him. And, and sometimes suffering is the means by which we experience the nearness of Christ in a way that we would not experience the nearness of Christ otherwise. So verse 21 and 22, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So, you know, Martha is saying, Jesus, if you want, I know you can still raise my brother from the dead. But verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, yeah, Jesus, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha can only think long term. She believes in heaven. She believes that one day Lazarus will come back from the dead and get a brand new body in heaven and he will live happily ever after. She believes that, but that's not the point Jesus is wanting to make here. Jesus, notice, he, he takes Martha from the future tense to the present tense. Literally, she uses future tense language. He will, in the future, be raised. But look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Oh, but Martha, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. You see that? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Only in Christianity, when you die, do you still live. So Jesus is saying, Martha, you don't have to wait until heaven to have hope. I'm here right now. I'm the resurrection now. I'm your life right now. It won't just get better in heaven. I can give you grace now. Even through the pain, I can be here. So Rebecca McLaughlin writes, she says, Martha is broken all she wants is her brother back. But Jesus is saying, Martha, your greatest need is not to have your brother back again. It's to have me. That's hard, isn't it? But sometimes we don't know Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And maybe Christ will allow things to be stripped from us so that we can receive more of him. If the point of our existence is to know Christ more deeply, 
And if it's true that everlasting joy is only found in him and in him alone, then finding Christ in our suffering is the point. And this is why the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon famously said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So, what if our suffering isn't God sticking it to us because he's mad at us? What if our suffering is an invitation to deeper intimacy with him because he loves us? Suffering with God is hard enough. I have no idea how people do it without him. And some of you are here this morning and you're trying and you don't have to. I have a friend, the love of his life for decades, his wife was lying on her deathbed and he's weeping over her body in those final hours and all of a sudden he begins to curse at the top of his lungs. And he doesn't curse God, but he curses death and he was right to do so. Because a husband should never have to bury his wife. A mother should never have to say goodbye to her son. No child deserves to have a parent walk out. Nobody deserves to be abused. So suffering and death and tsunamis and tornadoes and dementia and strokes and cancer, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And it can and it should cause in us a holy anger. So that every time we go to a funeral home, even for a Christian, it's an absolute tragedy. It is not supposed to be that way. This something is scream out inside of us when you look at a casket. This is not right. Why? In Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam. Remember Adam and Eve? They rebelled, they sinned. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So Adam and Eve's sin leads to the curse, and curse leads to suffering and death and terrible things, both natural and um, human evil all around us. And, and so this is the part where you can spend days and books digging in. God is mysteriously sovereign over all of that. The Bible is unequivocally clear. God's sovereign over all things but not in a way we can understand in this life. Does God cause the bad things to happen or does he simply allow them to happen? We don't know all the answers, but either way, let's be careful not to blame everything on God. Especially good reformed people need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we can have such a hyper focus on the sovereignty of God in all things, we forget there's an enemy whose name is the devil. When someone abuses a child, that is not God's will, ever. That's evil. See, so you've got all these things going on. God is totally sovereign, but Scripture also teaches us that the devil is ruling over the world. He's the little G God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So God, for a season of human history, is allowing Satan to wreak havoc on the world. Why we don't completely understand? But then you've also got this thing called free will. You can tease that out theologically forever, but at the bare minimum, it means we're not pre-programmed robots. There are really bad people who do really bad things. And so you get all these things going on. But if there's good, there's evil. If there's angels, there's demons. And 
You've got this enemy whose name is Satan, who Jesus said is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He lives to still kill and destroy, Jesus said. And, and there's even many times, I would say the majority uh, in the New Testament, when you see physical sickness, that Jesus actually attributes it to some kind of demonic opposition. Now, you can go to some crazy places with that. That does not mean every time I stub my toe or get a migraine, like it's the devil. I don't think that's true at all. But we also see from the biblical testimony that uh, Satan de- lives and delights, and the demons delight to torment people and to cause pain. And so every time someone dies, there's a party in hell. And so you, you, you have to live in this mentality. We live in a broken world where bad things are happening, and let's be careful not to blame it all on God. So my friend that cursed in anger over his wife's dying body, I think Jesus was angry too. Let me show you that, and then we'll conclude. In our passage in John chapter 11, Jesus doesn't just cry because he's sad. Jesus cries because he's mad. Look at this. Uh, Jesus is on his way to the cemetery where Lazarus is lying. And in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, the ESV, which is the version of the Bible we typically preach from here, uh, says he was deeply moved. Other translations say he groaned in himself. But many scholars have argued that those translations are too weak. John uses a Greek word that means to bellow with anger. You ever been uh, sad and mad at the same time? I think that's what Jesus is experiencing here. So the Holman Christian uh, Bible probably gets it right when it trans in some other older translations when it says this. Uh, then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. And then in verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. You see, when Jesus turned over tables, that wasn't the only time he gets angry. When Jesus goes to the graveyard, he gets angry. Because he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly, not that we may die. And so why is Jesus angry at the funeral? Why is he angry as he sees his loved ones grieving? After all, Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. If you haven't read the end of the story, by the way, spoiler, that's what happens. Okay, which is amazing. Jesus knows he's going to bring Lazarus back to life, but he's still grieving. He's still angry. Why? Christ is angry because he hates death. He's angry because he hates the enemy. And every time he sees death, it reminds him of the enemy who came to steal, kill, and destroy. So Calvin says, Jesus advances to the tomb of Lazarus, look at this, as a champion who prepares for conflict. He says, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. So Jesus goes to the graveyard as a death slayer. Jesus is not just a weeping savior. He is a conquering warrior king. Jesus comes to kill death. So he he cries out in John chapter 11, verse 43, with a loud voice. And from the context now, we know an angry voice. Jesus speaks authoritatively, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Friends, why did Jesus die? Not just to forgive us of our sins. Jesus died so that death may die. And when Jesus comes back from the dead, he lands a devastating blow to death itself. 
And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He himself will be raised from the dead. And in doing so, it's a foreshadowing for all of us in Christ that one day we too will be raised from the dead. Death is not the end. And so why does God allow evil and suffering? We can't provide an easy answer. But what we can say is what the reason is not. And it's not because Jesus doesn't love us. Because he died to one day end our suffering without having to end us. And so the day is coming in Revelation 21. Christian that is suffering, this is what we have to look forward to. In heaven, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. So, child of God, you will be healed. We have someone close to us that is hurting. They will be healed. It's not a question of if. It's only a question of when, and that includes brand new resurrected bodies. I love what Keller writes. He says, the resurrection of the body means we not only get the bodies and lives we had, but the bodies and lives we wished for, but had never before received. In other words, we all get six packs. I added that part. <laughs> this means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. So that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to, you know, when people die and we say, oh, they're in a better place. That is the most unbelievable understatement in human history. It is not enough to say we are going to a better place. We are going to a glory that is incomparable to the sufferings of this present time. The Apostle Paul, by the way, got to go to heaven before he died. God kind of snatched him up, gave him a snapshot of heaven, took him around a few days, and Paul came back and was essentially speechless. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, I saw things there that you have not seen, and if I tried to tell you, you wouldn't get it. It was too glorious. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Sam discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive, and he cries out. I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Keller writes, the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. This is the hope for the Christian. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Though there's tears in our eyes, we can look to the sky because Jesus says, I am coming and I will make all the sad things untrue. Let's bow our heads and I want to invite our music team and ministry team forward. Here, here's what we really want to do now, okay? Don't, let's, let's open ourselves up here. couple of things we want to do. First thing, this Wednesday, if you feel led, we would like to invite you to a church-wide day of prayer and fasting for all those that are suffering in our church and outside of our church, in our community. So if God would lead you, Wednesday, we will not eat but in those times when our stomach is growling and we're hungry, we will go to God in prayer on behalf of those that are suffering in any number of ways. And then Wednesday night, if you're able, we'll meet in this room at 6.30. Everyone is welcome for a time of prayer for the hurting and suffering. And if you have something you would like for us to pray for Wednesday, whether you can or cannot be there, you can submit those things. Just go to our church website, uh, and you can look in your program, and it'll show you how to do that. And we're going to put that on social media this week, too. And anyone from the community that has a prayer request, we're going to get a list, and we're going to pray for all of them by name Wednesday night. 
So we invite you to participate. But but for for now, hi guys. I think that sometimes we, some of us have not experienced the full blessing of being a Christian, in the sense that we've not been vulnerable enough to invite other people into our sadness and to allow people to pray for us. Guys, one of the greatest benefits and blessings of being a Christian is you don't just get Jesus, you get a family. And there are men and women in this room and children in this room who love you. And so one of the greatest things we can do as believers is in a moment of vulnerability to let others pray for us. It's a humbling thing to do, isn't it? But there's so much beauty and hope in taking another believer by the hand or letting someone put their hand on your shoulder, even if they don't know you super well, and just pray for you. That is healing. That is powerful. And I hope that many of us will receive that gift from Christ this morning. So there's If you're here and you're suffering, you're hurting, you're anxious, you're depressed, it could be something really scary, like a medical thing. It could be a marital or relationship issue. It could be, man, your your oldest or, or youngest graduated high school and they moved off to college and you're just sad. So, you know, whatever it is, it all matters to Jesus. You're a middle schooler and you've got anxiety about the cafeteria and who you're going to sit with. Jesus cares so much about that too. So whatever it is, we would love to pray for you. There's healing there. And so there's two ways you could do that. The first is uh, down here at the front and by those back exit doors in this room, you're going to see people with lanyards. That's our ministry team. And you can slide out of your seat starting now all the way through this next song and just go take one of them by the hand and you can tell them a lot. You can give them, you know, all kinds of details or you can just say, I really need prayer. And that's all you have to say and they'll pray for you. So you can do that starting now through the rest of the service or, you know, if you're not comfortable getting out of your seat, that's okay in just a moment. I'm going to give you the opportunity just to raise your hand up if you would like prayer. And you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say the reasons you need prayer. You just slip your hand up. And then those around you, one or two people sitting in front of you or behind you can just maybe place a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. So just take a moment and maybe ask the Lord if you need to do that. Say, God, do I need to go receive prayer? And then ask for the courage to do that and then we'll give you that opportunity. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.